What a sweet privilege to be in service with you again this morning. Uh, it was delightful to have the opportunity to worship with you last night. Uh, and certainly we felt the strength and the consolation of your prayers. And uh, I trust that you would be kind enough and gracious enough uh, to remember me for just a few moments. What I trust will be, I intend to be just a few moments this morning, God being my helper. Um, it's just, it's such a sweet privilege to be here. I'm thankful to be here with uh, many dear, close, precious brothers and sisters in Christ. I love all of you for Jesus' sake, every single one of you for Jesus' sake. There are some of you that I've had the privilege of walking very closely with uh, in service to the Lord, and uh, what an incredible uh, opportunity to uh, be with you. So, um, just so that we can move on knowing the time hastening along, and um, we look forward to hearing Brother Chris Krause. I've enjoyed him many times, many times over the course of the years. I've heard him uh, just preach the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ in such a mighty way. I don't know that I have ever enjoyed him more. And if you can really enjoy a brother's preaching before you're going to try to preach, they're preaching. <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> Uh, I talked to my precious wife this morning, and um, I told her that I, it, it was just so consoling to my heart to hear uh, who my Savior is, where my Savior is, and what my Savior does. I love men that brag on Jesus, and he did such a wonderful job. So pray for uh, both of us this morning. Isaiah 49, Isaiah 49. Um, I read a little essay one time by C.H. Spurgeon on the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. And the title of that essay, I thought, described the entire book of Isaiah as vividly, succinctly, and correctly as I've ever heard it. Uh, the title of his essay from the book of Isaiah was called The Gospel According to Isaiah. <laughs> and the pictures of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Isaiah, I dare say that they are as vivid as any of the pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have in any of the Gospels. Uh, Matthew through John, Isaiah, God under the, God blessing him. He, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, describes in such vivid terms the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of his great name and to the comfort of my soul, I love the book of Isaiah, the gospel according to Isaiah. Inside of the book of Isaiah, there, like the book of Psalms, there are many different sections, types of uh, sacred literature that are contained in it. There are some very wonderfully uh, novel, unusual sections that are referred to by scholars as the servant songs, S-O-N-G-S's. The servant songs. They're contained inside of the book of Isaiah. At least the first one, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold and whom my soul delights. They begin there. And then they're scattered. They're sprinkled throughout the remainder of the book of Isaiah. The servant songs. And it depends on which scholar you read and embrace. There are six of them. They are six. There are six of those songs. Some seem more. It depends on how you divide them. But uh, for our purposes this morning, they are clearly there. 
And those songs describe who the servant of Jehovah God is. And, the, uh, and so I'll announce that this morning, that the triune God, there is a member of the triune God who is the second person of the Godhead, who is the servant of the Trinity as our mediator, our Savior and Redeemer, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. In covenant past, in eternity past, He undertook our covenant obligations and agreed to come into this world and be the servant of the Godhead. And so these songs, these servant songs, describe Him and His work, their ultimate meaning and message, describing the person and work of the servant of Jehovah in a very vivid way. And as it talks, just as Brother Chris so sweetly preached last night about who Jesus Christ is, where He is and what He does, these servant songs do that and it put them on my mind. Who He is, what is He doing, where is He, what's going on with Him? And they will bring consolation. The Lord will bless us together. They will bring consolation, comfort, encouragement to your heart that you are going to need. If you don't need it right now, you're going to need it before long. We need to, we need to be refreshed. We need to constantly be rehearsing more than anything else in our life what Jesus Christ has done, what He is doing, and what He's going to do. Nothing else will take care of the issues that you're dealing with like that. I'm telling you, the bigger and larger my Savior is, in my view, the smaller and smaller my problems become. Amen? The bigger and brighter the Son of God is, the, the smaller and smaller. Because I know through Him, I'm always going to conquer. Mighty through Him to the pulling down of strongholds. And so we begin uh, with uh, Isaiah 49. Now, uh, you're going to think, no, Brother Crawford's confused. Uh, this is not talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's talking about Israel. We're going to see, we're going to see, especially in the fifth verse, that the servant is not Israel. That's being spoken of here. So uh, we'll give what educators call an advanced cognitive organizer. I'll explain that later. Uh, an event. So let me say this. The servant is going, I'm going to go ahead and say this. Is there? The servant is going to be called Israel. He's going to be called Israel. You say, oh, the servant's Israel. No, he's not. We're going to see in the fifth verse that it's not Israel. Well, how can that be? Those sounds like mutually exclusive. Either he's Israel or he's not Israel. Yes, he is. Let me say this. You know the reason, this is so wonderful. You know the reason that God loves you? Because whenever God looks at you, he sees you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know the reason that you have acceptance with the Godhead today? Because the Godhead sees you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chosen in him, predestinated in him, quickened in him, vouchsafed in him. The Father no longer sees the head apart from the body. We are united. We're in perfect union with him. So that whenever the Father looks at him, he sees us. We are one in him. So that he has actually taken our name and we've taken his name. We're together. You're going to see that's beautiful. I love that. Uh, the psalmist said this. He said, the poet said this. Talking about, now remember this. Whenever Satan comes to you and assails you, the reason you have acceptance with the Father is because you are united to his son. It's not, based on, it, it's not based on human achievement. It's not because you've been so good or so wise. 
The Father accepts you because you are united to his son. You're a bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And we're going to see that whenever he actually calls the servant by the name of his people. That's amazing to me. That's amazing. The poet said it this way of how wonderful it is to be a part of the Lord Jesus Christ and that whenever the Father sees us, he sees us in the person of his Son. The poet said, near, so very near to God, nearer I could not be, for in the person of his Son, I'm near and dear as he. You see that? (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? So we're going to see that the servants actually call by the name of his people because God sees them as one. Thank God. Hallelujah. Listen, O wives. Listen, O wives, unto me, and hearken, you people from afar. The Lord hath called me from the womb, that is the servant, from the bowels of my mother, and he hath made mention of my name. The Son of God is set apart before he got in this world. He set apart once he got in this world. Uh, Jesus Christ didn't come into this world. God called him from the womb. Jesus Christ didn't work to become a Savior. He was born a Savior. The father called him from the womb and he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword out of the mouth of the son of God. In the book of Revelation twice comes a two-edged sword. The son of God, his, his word is powerful. In the shadow of his hand, he hath hid me. He hath made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he hath hid me. He is the instrument of God. He's going to brag on his servant here, the father. And he said unto me, thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I be glorified. Now there it is. He calls the servant Israel. But watch this. Then I said, the servant, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for naught and in vain. Surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with God. The servant's rejected. But now listen. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant. So we know who's talking. The servant's talking to be a servant and to bring Jacob again to him. You know who Jacob is? It's another name for Israel, right? So he's called the servant Israel. And now the servant's saying, no, my job is to bring Israel to God. Isn't that wonderful? They are together. (laughs) They are together. Though Israel, be not, though Israel be not gathered, yet I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Okay, now pressing on. That's the servant. And he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. There again, a distinction between uh, the servant and Israel, though, he, though they're seen as one. He said, it's a, it's a light thing to bring Jacob again to him. And to restore the preserved of Israel, I will give thee a light for the Gentile, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. There's no question who we're talking about now, right? Jesus Christ is a light to the Gentiles. They that sat, they that sat and lived in the land of the valley of the shadow of death, who had never had the word of God. Jesus Christ comes and a great light shines to them. My God shall be my strength. And then in verse 7, thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One to him who uh, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth to be a servant of rulers, kings shall uh, see and arise. Princes shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he shall serve thee. Now he's going to start. We've had the servant vividly described. Now he's going to start talking about what he's going to do for his people as a result of the servant. Okay, he's going to do incredible things for his people. Pay close attention here. It gets good. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard thee, in the day of salvation 
Have I helped thee? I will preserve thee. I will give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth and cause to inherit the desolate heritages. So Israel needs help. He says, don't worry. I'm going to establish a covenant with, uh, with Israel for their help. I'm going to give you as the covenant to Israel. Uh, the covenant means surety and arrangement. And this is what's going to happen. That thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth to them that are in darkness. Show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways and their pasture shall be in all high places. Notice, and we're going to start building up what God's doing for his people. We need to be reminded about what God's doing for his people. Notice what God says. He says, there's a lot of things he didn't do for him in this verse through the servant. He said, you can say, you're going to say to the prisoners, go forth. First of all, those that are uh, in prison, in bondage, in shackles. He said, the servant's going to loose them and set them at liberty. That's good news if you've ever been a prisoner. When I was about eight years old, uh, there was a group of children in, uh, I was in Weeblows. It's kind of like Cub Scouts in between Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts. And so they carried us down to the local county jail. And I don't know, maybe they thought we were a difficult looking group of Weeblows. I don't know, but they carried us down to the local, to the local jail. And they had us all walk into a cell and they, and they shut the door on these eight-year-old Weeblows. And they said, now get out. Let me tell you, they have never had, law enforcement has never had any problem with me from that day until this. I got it. They've got the key and I don't. I can't imagine what it would be like to be someplace that I can't get out of. Whenever I was, whenever I was kidnapped for those eight hours, a guy held a gun on me. I felt like I was in jail for, I couldn't get away, I couldn't get out. You have no idea how wonderful it felt to be set at liberty from that captor. And this is what God tells his people. If you're in prison, and let me say, many of you right now have circumstances in your life, or you've had circumstances in your life, or you're going to have circumstances in your life that will put you in shackles and chains and in bondages, and God promises, I'm going to set prisoners free. God is an emancipator. I like that song. He's a chain breaker, right? God sets people free. That's what he promises his servant's going to do for Israel. And you're his covenant people. That belongs to you. It's incredible things. I just want to stack these up very quickly. The, the incredible, over-the-top hyperbole that God's going to do for his people. I'm going to set prisoners free. Them that are in darkness, I'm going to set them free. I'm going to bring light. If you can't find your way in this world, I'm going to be a light to those that are in darkness. They're going to feed. You don't have to worry about what you're going to eat. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to take care of you. I was young, but now I'm old. Yet in all my days, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to feed you naturally. I'm going to feed you spiritually. And God's done that for you. And their, their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst. Neither shall the heat or the sun smite them. I'm going to provide for them a climate-controlled environment. That's incredible. These are incredible, over-the-top promises. For he, for that he hath mercy on them, shall lead them, even by springs of water shall guide them. Then he says this, this is what he promised. Israel has been in difficulty. Israel has been in straits. And he, he says, listen, I'm going to set you free. I'm going to provide light where there's darkness. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to air condition your environment. And then he says this, he said, and I'll make all my mountains away and my highway shall be exalted. 
So what does that mean? The mountains shall be away. Have you ever tried to get to the mountains? I was up preaching in uh, eastern Kentucky one time, and uh, we were going to leave uh, and go to church. And, and I asked the brother who I was with, Elder Teddy Ball, I said, now how far have we got to? He said, it's only about 10 miles over yonder. <laughs> And I said, well, that's good. Why are we leaving an hour and 15 minutes early? He said, no, it's going to take the whole hour and 15 because you don't just go from here to there. you got to go there and we'll go back over there and around and back down and forth. Mountains make traveling difficult. <laughs> you can't just get there from here. you got to go around Jebel to get to your nuts. And every one of us have experienced those in our lives, right? We've had great problems, great difficulties, great challenges, great obstacles that have arisen. We've had mountains. We've had health issues that have become mountains. We've had relationship issues that have become mountains. We've had spiritual issues that have become mountains. And God promises here, listen, I'm going to lay the mountains flat. I'm going to plow a road right through the mountains, and you're going to be able to walk through very easily. And then he said, uh, in my highway, notice, hear what he says? Is that my highway shall be exalted. So there are times that we have great challenges, obstacles, we can't get over there. And then he says, my highways are going to be exalted. What does that mean? Then we have valley experiences, don't we? We get things, sadness overcomes us, the loss of a loved one, betrayal, things that we don't understand. And we become paralyzed by our circumstances and darkness creeps in around them. And God promises this, I'm going to exalt the valleys. And I'm going to, you're not going to have to go down. I'm, you're in the valley right now, but I'm going to raise you up out of the valley and you're going to walk across. What more can Israel ask for? God said, I'm going to set you free. I'm going to give you light. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to take care of your climate. I'm going to remove mountains in front of you. I'm going to exalt your valleys. I'm going to make it easy for you to walk. What more can we... God's done every bit of that for us, hasn't He? What more can we ask for? So they have no reason. They have no... Listen, they... He says, Behold, these come from afar, these from the north, from the, from the west, and these from the land of Sinai. In other words, He's telling us where He's going to take care of His children. Notice what He says. He says, I'm going to take care of them from afar, from the north, from the west, from the land of Sinem. So where's the land of Sinem? I like this. Some people say, well, it's southern Arabia. There are scholars who believe he's talking about China. I don't know. I don't know. That's the good news. I don't know where all of God's children are. But you know what the message is? Nobody really knows where the land of Sinem is. We don't have to know where the land of Sinem is because God knows where the land of Sinem is. And if he's got a child of grace there, he's taking care of them there. What he's saying is wherever my children are, whatever their circumstances are, I'm going to take care of them. Maybe your children aren't where you want them to be today. Maybe you don't even know where they're at. God does. God knows where they're at. God knows where all of his children are, and he's promising Israel, I'm going to take care of you, no matter where you're at. That's good news. <laughs> that is good news. And so God says, this should be your response. Listen to this. So God's promised to take care of every single area of their life. Can I say that again very quickly? God has promised to take care of how much of your life? Every single area of your life. Paul promised the church at Philippi, he said, listen, but my God shall supply all of your needs. How many of your needs? All of your needs. Why is he going to do it? First of all, he's got the ability to do it. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. If we could ever look into the storehouse of God one time, we'd never doubt again. His supplies never run out. 
And then you say, well, I haven't been good enough for God to take care of my needs. He said, he's going to take care of your needs according to his riches and glory by Jesus Christ. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good Christ was, right? Thank God. <laughs> Amen. If he took care of me like I deserved, I'd be the poorest of the poor. But he's not going to do it for that, for Jesus' sake. So he's taking care of them. So what should be the response? Verse 13. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful. That's the reason we get very glad when we come to meetings like this and we hear the same thing we've heard for many years, what the Lord has done for us, right? That's all I've been telling is what the Lord has done for us. Sing, O heavens, be joyful. O earth, break forth into singing. That's the spiritually logical response to the fact that God is going to take care of you. Every bit of you. That's the sing, O heavens. Rejoice, break forth, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. Now, so we pause. What more could God do for us than all that? Right? We have absolutely nothing to worry about, right? Every reason all to be happy and to be thankful and grateful and to rejoice, right? And we know that as old bats. So we ought to be the what? The happiest people on the face of the earth, right? And you think, now, after God himself has said this to anybody, their response is they're going to shout and be glad. I remember growing up in church and, and sisters would get excited and they'd shout and they'd shout at the right time. And after you heard all this, it's something to shout about. Amen. So I like this. Now, this is a... As the young folks tell me, uh, now we're going to get real. <laughs> Just trying to keep it real, Mr. Crawford. So that should be the way we are. <clears throat> one of my, and it's still one of my favorite child stories. Uh, I loved it. They made a movie of it where they, kind of, you know, through that computer imaging that they did, they made Winnie the Pooh look real. I cried all the way through that movie, the whole way through that Winnie the Pooh movie. I love Winnie the Pooh. I just love Winnie the Pooh. And the older I get, the more I cry, and I'm not ashamed of it. I can't even make it through an episode of Little House on the Prairie anymore. Pa gets in trouble, and there I go. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh came on, I cried. I love Winnie the Pooh. I, I own it. My favorite Winnie the Pooh character is, everybody knows Winnie the Pooh and the character. My favorite Winnie the Pooh character is Eeyore. I love Eeyore. <laughs> Eeyore and I relate. We understand. I, it doesn't matter how great things are, Eeyore is, oh no, here we come. It's bad. It's not good. So, Remember now, everything I've told you God's done for these people, and they should be rejoicing, shouting, hands in the air, dancing before the Ark of the Covenant, right? So I'm going to read it like Eeyore would read. Would you all please read? I do tend toward the dramatic. I'm going to read it like Eeyore would read it, okay? <laughs> After all of this, God said, Sing, O heavens, joyful, earth break forth into singing. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me. And my Lord hath forgotten me. How can you say that? How can you say that? The Lord hath forsaken me. The Lord hath forgotten me. But, and we know God's been good to us. Amen. <laughs> we, you look back over your life and see where the kind hand of providence has led you safely this far. Yet we will still. Oh no. 
The Lord hath forsaken me. The Lord hath forgotten me. This is the end. He's gone as far with me as he can go. It's over. So to combat that, this is amazing to me. To combat that, to combat that, I want you to think about this. Who's talking now? This is the thrice holy God. We must never forget with whom we have to do. This is the thrice holy God. Listen, you know what goes on before the throne of God in heaven? There are mighty, mighty creatures up there, winged creatures. And they fly before the throne of God. And all those incredible creatures do is they cry, holy, holy, holy. Because God is the holy other God. And they fly before him. And with two of their wings, they cover their blushing faces. And with two of their wings, they cover their feet, lest there be a misstep. And with two of their wings, they fly around in heaven to the glory of God, shouting, holy. That's the God who's speaking here. And his people have basically thumbed their nose at the goodness of God and all the evidence that he's given to them. And this is what a merciful God we have in order to convince them that he's real and he's with them and he's going to set them free and he's going to level mountains and he's going to exalt valleys and he's going to provide for them. Our God allows himself to be compared to a nursing mother. <laughs> Can you believe that? The thrice holy God before whom angels hide their blushing faces says, I'm like a nursing mother. What a condescending God we have in such a gracious way. Listen to what he says. He says, can a woman forget her suckling child? And then he says this. I was corrected by a sister on this, and then I corrected her. He said, can a woman forget her suckling child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget. Yet I will not forget thee. So she came up to me after church, it had been many years ago, and she said, Brother David, I just can't believe that a mother would forsake her suckling child. And I told her very quickly, I said, that's not what the prophet Isaiah said. The prophet Isaiah did not ask the question, can a mother forsake her suckling child? He said, can a woman forsake her suckling child? And beloved, as we've lived long enough in the United States of America now to see, there's a great deal of difference between somebody who can biologically reproduce progeny and somebody who is a mother and a father. Just because you can biologically procreate does not give you the right to bear title of mother or father. A mother will never forsake their suckling child, but a woman will. <laughs> that means all women are not mothers and all men are not fathers. So the Lord says, yeah, a woman may forsake her suckling child. She may, but I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You see, Satan is great at providing us evidence. He is. Evidence for why I think he's left you now. I think God is, he's turned his back on you. He's gone far enough. He's not going any further. He's, uh, he, he brings evidence in the form of unanswered prayers and disappointments. And he whispers that in us here. If God really cared, your prayers would be answered. You wouldn't be disappointed. You wouldn't experience what you've experienced. If God really cares, but faith must overcome Satan's evidence. And here God gives it to us. 
He said, I'm, uh, I'm better than a nursing mother. Listen, if you do not, in spite of the evidence that Satan brings by faith, overcome that evidence, you're going to try to find and steal love in other places. That's right. I can't depend on God. That's not going to be enough. I've got to find it somewhere else. He's all we need. He is all we need. And he goes on to, he goes on to explain it. Uh, I'm like a nursing mother. So uh, let's think about that. The relationship between a nursing mother and her child. Well, uh, <laughs> what, does a, what does a nursing infant add to a mother? What does a nursing infant give back to another? Now, mothers suspend judgment for just a minute. I'll get to the right place before it's over. I promise. But you know how marriages are like give and take, give and take, right? Give and take, give and take. Well, nursing mothers and infants, it is give and take. The nursing infant is give, give, give. The nursing infant is take, 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 take. And the mother is give, 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 give. They do nothing for the mother. A nursing infant doesn't give anything back to the mother. In a very practical, pragmatic sense. Except... That mother loves that baby with everything. I mean, what is the, what's the infant? Is the infant doing chores? Is the nursing infant vacuuming the floors, washing the dishes? They're doing, adding nothing to the mother except a mother loves them completely, unconditionally. And that's what God says. I'm like a nursing mother. It doesn't matter. Listen, God has created... We're we curiously and wonderfully made. Um, the last thing I want to say about nursing mothers and infants and God being like one, it's in the nature. God has created women, thank God, in such a wonderful way that the nature of a nursing mother compels her, draws her to her infant. Isn't that amazing? There are two chemicals that um, women produce and that they have that are nursing, and one of them is called prolactin, and the other one's oxytocin. And both of those chemicals inside the mother that are produced as they're nursing draws mothers, compels mothers toward their infants, can't forget them. Those two chemicals, even a mother, a half-hearted woman mother, she still is drawn by those two chemicals, oxytocin and prolactin, quarter it's her nature god has designed her that it's her nature for her to be drawn not to forget her infant they won't allow it let me say this it is the nature of of your god it is the nature of who god is what he is that will not allow him to forget you it's in his nature it's his covenant faithfulness. It's who he is. It's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. They're new every morning. His compassions fail not. Great is thy faithfulness. He's a faithful God. And he said, once I've sworn, Psalm 89, once I've sworn, by my, uh, once I've sworn to my servant David, I will not lie to him. And he that promised eternal life before the world began cannot lie. God is committed to you. He's promised that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He's the immutable, unchangeable, faithful God. His name, his name is at stake in his relationship with you. His nature compels him to hold on to you. He will not let you go. This is the last thing I have to say. Last thing that I have to say. I love this. And so... You know, 
I not long ago, I promised a dear lady who joined McClendon Primitive Baptist Church, I promised her, said, I know that a lot of folks have walked out on you, I know, and she had a lot of folks have betrayed you, they've walked out of your life, they've left you alone, they've abandoned you, but I promise you, I use the P word, I promise you, we will not abandon you, we will not forsake you, we will not walk out on you, uh, and as long as I'm here, I'll do my very best to make sure that that day could be that I'm not here, though. And she was so heartbroken. She said to me, she said, Brother David, I've heard those words before. So Israel can say now, all right, well, we appreciate that. You're like a nursing mother. It's your nature it compels you not to forsake me. But those are just words, right? Those are just words. Up to this point, it's just words. It's the promise of God. Just words. So it's the last thing I want to tell you in three minutes. And this is what he says after that. I will not forget that he said, Behold, I've graven thee upon the palm of my hands thy walls are ever before me. So in, listen to this, in Exodus 21, there's an unusual law in Exodus 21, and it's the law of the indentured servant. When America was founded in England, there were many that were in debtor's prisons over in England. And so to get out of debtor, if you got in debt over there, they put you in jail back in the 1600s, 1700s. Get out of jail. Uh, there were people that wanted to, uh, there were uh, speculators that wanted to open up land in the new world. So they would go to debtor's prison and they would pay the debt of that prisoner who would agree to indenture themselves to that individual who paid their debt, got them out of jail. So they would come to America and be their indentured servant for a number of years until they worked off what that man had paid to get him out of prison. You understand that? Well, in Israel, there was a law. If you fell on hard times, maybe your farm wasn't working out. There'd been pestilence, blight, locust. Uh, you know, there's not been a lot of rain and you haven't made it. And you're, you're, you're almost bankrupt. You can't feed your wife and children. What an Israelite could do was he could sell himself to another Israelite and he would indenture himself to them. He'd sell himself on that money. He'd provide for his wife and children. But he was functionally a slave for up to six years. And in the seventh year, they were let go in the seventh year. Now, can you imagine how happy someone, can you imagine how happy someone who's been a slave for six years would be? Boy, I'd be sitting up waiting for the clock to turn midnight and waving goodbye. <laughs> but there's an unusual law. Listen to this. There's an unusual law. The servant has worked for that master for six years. And they formed a relationship. And even though he's a servant, a slave, he's not a volitional person anymore. He, doesn't, he can't exercise his own will. As a slave, as a servant, you can't. It's the will of your master. And so on the day that he's to go free, the servant says this. But I love my master. <laughs> I love my master. In other words, I don't want to leave you. Even though I'm your slave, your servant... I don't want to leave you. And so this is what would happen. The master would carry him down uh, to the city square, to the gates of the city. And in front of the judges of that city, they would, he would, the servant would have to declare, I love my master. I want to be with him. 
And they would take him over to a pole on the gate of the city and they would take an awl, that is a piercing device. They would take an awl and they'd put his ear against the pole and they would drive a hole into his ear. And for the rest of his life, for the rest of his life, wherever that man went, they would know that he is the servant of someone else. He doesn't belong to himself. Isn't that an amazing story? It gets me emotional just sharing it with you that someone would love a master like that. But I'm going to tell you a story that's better than that. I'm going to tell you a story not about a servant who loved their master and remained a servant, but what about a master that loved his servants so much that the master decided, I love my servants. So I'm going to become a servant. How about that? Say, well, who would do that? When was that happen? When would that happen? 2,000 years ago. How do I know? How do I know that Jesus really cares for me? How do I know whenever Satan is filling my ears and my soul full of lies that God doesn't care? He's indifferent. He's an, in, he's an unfeeling Desensitize God. How do I know that God cares? 2,000 years ago, there were a group of men, frightened men that were huddled in an upper room. Just been tragedy. The one they love had been killed. He'd been crucified. And they were gathered, frightened, huddled together. And yet, they saw the Lord that day. And the news was around. We've seen the Lord. And Jesus appears to them and says, fear not, don't be afraid. And so one of them has been absent and he comes in and his name is Thomas. And they tell Thomas, no, we've seen the Lord. We say he's alive. We know it's him. And Thomas said, I will not believe. Right. Thomas said, I will not believe. He said, until I see the prints of the nails, until I put my until I put my finger in the print of the nails in his hand. And until I can thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And eight days later. Eight days later, they're together again. And Jesus appears to Thomas. Do you want to know if Jesus really cares? You look to the cross. Eight days later, Jesus appears. And he says, Thomas, here's my hand. Put your finger in my hand. Thomas, you really need to know it's me and that I care and that I love you. Thomas, there's my side. Thrust your hand into my side. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. I've doubted over the course of years whether God was through with me or not. Whether I had messed up so greatly that he couldn't have anything to do with me anymore. And I would come to places like this and I'd hear dear men like Chris Krause and Ron Lawrence and Mike Roberts and Dole Hurst and others. Show me again my Savior on the cross. And all my doubts and fears were removed. You were literally graven in the palms of his hands. A horrible spike was driven there 2,000 years ago. And as you all know, as evidence throughout all eternity that he does care and that he does love, the only thing made by men in heaven, the only thing made by men in heaven is what? The prints of the nails in his hand and feet and in his side. He's still there. When John saw him in Revelation, he still bore the marks of Calvary as eternal evidence 
that he does love us like better than a nursing mother loves his children. We are not forsaken. That should convert uh, every Eeyore that may be seated under the sound of my voice this morning. If you're an Eeyore, you're not forsaken. Jesus cares. May God bless you and keep you as my prayer for Christ's sake.